Hello and welcome to the Spirit Guide Society podcast. My name is Pedro Shanahan and I'm your spirit guide. Tonight in the Whiskey Society at Seven Grand, we had master distiller Bruce Joseph in the house from Old Potrero up in San Francisco. They tasted us on the 18th century style rye whiskey, the straight rye, the hotelings, the straight malt whiskey finished in port barrels, and their new expression, J.H. Cutter. Be sure to check out this podcast. Tell all your friends who want to learn more about the spirits they enjoy, and please do so responsibly, which means don't listen, drink, and drive at the same time. Thank you guys, and welcome to the Whiskey Society. Now we'll get into the normal, rational flow of things, not trying to recreate reality in some virtual world. Uh, we've got Hodling's Distillery in the house tonight. Uh, if you guys are not familiar with this brand, the Old Portrayal line is an incredible line of spirits, and it's totally unusual. They're, they're really trying to reinvigorate kind of an old world style of production. Well, let's give it up for Mr. Bruce Joseph from Highlands Distillery. <laughs> Come over here, Bruce. Over here. Yeah, we're, we're going to be on YouTube, too. Oh, so. oh, good. So do you know any, like, uh, physical comedy? Can we do some track falls <laughs> or something? You can give me a noogie if you want. Um, but tell us about your line. You guys are, not only are we going to taste through some of the old portrayal stuff tonight, but uh, we're also going to taste the, the, this new whiskey that you guys have just launched, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But give us a little history. Let's back it up a little bit. How long has Old Patrol been out? And you guys are kind of pioneers in the whole craft distilling world, right? Yes. And have yeah. you been the master distiller from the beginning, or when did you start with the with the? Well, company? I started distilling when we started distilling, but Fritz Maytag, who's the owner of Anchor, um, he was the owner, president, master brewer, master distiller. But... I work for Fritz. And so uh, Fritz is famous. For, he's from the Maytag family of washers and dryers. Is that true? That's true. Yeah. And, and he, he's actually the guy who created um, Maytag Blue Cheese. Is that correct? His father. His father. It's a, it's a family business, uh, the Maytag family. And the appliance company was from Iowa, um, Newton, Iowa. And um, in the 40s, Fritz's father worked with... Um, Iowa State University um, to breed cows to make to give milk for um, for blue cheese, and then they started making blue cheese. Wow! And, but yeah. it was also it had something to do with the actual the, the certain kind of inoculation of that kind of blue cheese, right? What's the story? How did he find the, the mold that created that specific kind of blue cheese? Oh, hell, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I want, there's a story about a cave and a shepherd and a little brown bag lunch or something, I think. That's all true, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know much about making cheese, except the, the blue cheese is better than those ones that are already sliced with the, the each individually wrapped. American cheese? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The blue, blue cheese, cheese is I agree with you. Yeah. Blue cheese is better than American cheese. I know that much. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the Maytag family, uh, Fritz came in and started Anchor Distilling, or what was, what was the, origi the original company? Well, kind of the, the, the short history of Fritz, uh, Fritz's involvement is he was in school at Stanford. Um, after, after school, he was in San Francisco and trying to decide what he was going to do next. Um, at Stanford, there was a, a kind of a student bar where it was one of the few 
draft accounts for Anchor Steam beer. And Anchor Steam at that time in the 60s was a tiny brewery, really down on its luck, um, you know, in, in, in the 50s and 60s in a world of blander and blander American lagers. It was making this kind of idiosyncratic beer that people didn't like very much. And, and one of the issues, to be fair to people, was that the, the, the brewery was so old and antiquated that the beer wasn't very consistent. A lot of times it was, it was sour and it was bad. But um, I think Fritz was drawn to the history that steam beer was a, not so much a style, but a type of beer um, um, brewed in the Bay Area since the gold rush. <laughs> And I think the history and what it meant to, to in San Francisco drew him to that. And um, he found that he could buy 50% ownership for um, a couple thousand dollars. And um, so he became part owner in um, the mid-60s and kind of set to work. He had a background in science. Um, he described the first time he took his microoscope to the brewery and looked at the beer under a microscope, he was just terrified, all kinds of things in it. <laughs> but um, worked on, on you know, upgrading the brewery and making it a consistent beer, an all malt beer, and then went on, um, started bottling it up to that point. It was draft only. In fact, when he bought it, it was draft only in wooden kegs. Um, started bottling in the early 70s. Um, um, and then started adding other beers. And I, I don't know if people are familiar with the number of firsts that Anchor came up with, but Anchor Porter in the early 70s. In 1975, Liberty Ale, the first ale made with, um, dry hopped ale made with Cascade hops. Christmas Ale, um, the first Christmas ale that wasn't just a regular beer with Christmas packaging. And Old Foghorn Barley Wine, the first barley wine in the United States. 1984, Anchor did the first wheat beer in the United States, or at least since before Prohibition. So, wow, um, he, that's a lot of firsts. Yeah, he, he really, I, th I think it's fair to call Fritz the person that started the whole craft beer thing. Um, I started working for Fritz in 1980. I was just out of college um, trying to figure what I was going to do with my life and um, was lucky enough to kind of stumble into a job there. And when I went to work at Anchor, um, there were 13 people there. And through the 80s, Fritz it was always talking about, you know, kind of an interest in making rye whiskey. And I think, um, again, there are two things that appealed to him was um, <laughs> the history of rye whiskey in the United States. And the other thing that always appealed to Fritz is he liked to do something that no one else was doing at the time. <laughs> And for those of you who are old enough, uh, maybe a couple of us. <laughs> I'm old enough. Yeah, I, I know. <laughs> um, that that in the um, 80s and 90s, it just right. No one cared about rye whiskey. You know, I think when we started distilling in the Bay Area, I think you could get Old Overholt, Jim Beam rye, and maybe Wild Turkey rye. I can't think of any others. Mm -hmm. So those two things really appealed to him. And so that that was the motivation. You know, we, we ended up doing gin and we do other products now. But the the kind of what inspired him to open a, a distillery and to start a distillery was the, the desire to do rye whiskey and to try to do it in a, in a style from colonial times, that it was um, um, not aged, the, the initially not aged in um, 
in charred barrels. It was pre-charred barrels. Wow, that's really, really interesting. So, um, and now you guys, all these years later, you are making more uh, aged products, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, of course. The first bottling was aged. It was a very young whiskey. Uh, another, another kind of dream he had is he wanted to start the distillery, make whiskey, and bottle it and release it without anyone knowing we had a distillery. <laughs> and so that kind of maybe cut down on our... Um, our aging time for the first, the first bottling was a very, very young whiskey. And we're brewers and that's a hard transition. You know, you're used to, you brew it and about a month later you're drinking it, you know, and, and we were pretty impatient. You know, I, I remember like at about four months we thought, <laughs> Oh, it tastes like whiskey to me. Let's bottle it. <laughs> and, and but, to, but to put that into a historical reference, like that's the way that old world whiskey would have been. They weren't aging whiskey 200 years ago with the point of aging it. It was just as much it time a, as it took to get from one place to another. That was the age of the whiskey. It was a container. Yeah. You know, and I don't think that, you know, just from what I've read, I don't think there was an expectation in the United States that if you as a consumer bought whiskey, that it would be aged at all until after the Civil War. So it's like the later 1800s when, you know, aged whiskey became, you know, a thing. Right on. So what's the first mark on our, our little journey this evening? All right. The, the first one is what we, we called um, 18th century style whiskey. This is 100% um, malted rye. Um, oh, thanks. <laughs> um, aged um, two and a half to three years in new um, toasted oak barrels. Okay, can you speak a little bit to that? So most of the whiskey that we've had in our life is usually, if you're drinking bourbon, it's a charred oak barrel that's being used for the first time. If it's Irish or Scotch, it's usually a used bourbon cask. Most of the spirits you've probably had in your life have been stored in a used bourbon cask. But what does toasting bring to a flavor profile as opposed to charred oak? Well, I always thought that, that in a way, it almost highlights the, the rye more. Um, it's more out front. The, the overall experience is kind of um, brighter. Um, and I think, you know, some of the, some of the, like the, the kind of the fruitiness and the, the grassiness is, is more up front than in a, in a charred barrel. So that, it, it lets the distillate kind of stand out mm -hmm, more. Yeah. So when you char a barrel, that, that layer of char, it, it, you're bringing the caramelized sugar of the white oak tree into the whiskey, but you're also providing a little bit of a filter, like as the whiskey expands into the wood and out again through the temperature fluctuations in whatever rack house or however you're storing a whiskey, it's, it's kind of polishing that whiskey. It's, it's filtering it. The charcoal serves as a filter and kind of smooths yeah, out it, it's that, the whiskey that over time. layer is just like a kind of crude charcoal filter. Yeah. You know, and, and charcoal filters remove impurities. And so it, it, it is... Um, I always think of the, you know, the, the charred barrel is, is rounder and ha is deeper and um, where this is to me is like higher notes, you know. It and so to make a barrel, you have to heat up the staves in order to bend them to get to actually make the barrel. So you have to toast it at least. And in the toasting process, even without charring it, you are drawing the sap toward the source of the heat. So you are going to pull some of those vanillins and things that are naturally occurring in a white oak barrel closer to where the whiskey is going to be stored. So it is going to sweeten up somewhat, I would think. Yeah. 
uh, and, and bring those kind of lighter notes, but not as heavy because you're not charring it. So you're not getting all those like sulfury or phenolic notes from the barrel itself. You're going to get just these kind of more like toasty floral notes, yeah. I would think. Kind yeah. of like there's no wine. You haven't like stored any wine or any other spirit in these barrels before using them? No. Now we'll have we'll have one that is, is finished in port later. But Ooh. this one... These, this whiskey was all in um, new charred oak and American oak. And I'd like to just say one other thing about the barrels that I think Fritz kind of, um, kind of re maybe reintroduced or introduced to, to American whiskey making is that when we started distilling in 93 and we went out to try to find a cooperage, we found the standard... American bourbon barrel that all the big distilleries were buying was just the cheapest barrel they could get. It was coarse grain, um, kiln dried, um, white oak, and all the you know the fine and extra fine grain air dried wood. Those were the wineries that was buying that, and so we were lucky to be with a, a cooperage that over the years um, was willing to experiment with us, and we used all kinds of combination of air dried. Um, wood. Um, our standard barrel today is extra fine grain, 24-month air dried, and our charred barrels are toasted first. So they're toasted and then charred. And we feel that um, toasting first, you get a deeper penetration into the wood and that you don't get some of those um, kind of harsh flavors um, because of the deeper penetration, you know, the kind of raw wood Flavor. So you're going for a softer, sweeter barrel? Is that kind of the goal? No, not just. Um, I think more that you're you're not you don't have some of the astringency that you get from. So it's it's not so much more sweetness, but but you know not the astringency on the, okay. on the back end that you might get. Okay, so um, stick your nose in this glass, breathing gently through your mouth. And, and think about how is this smell different from other whiskeys that you've had? Is, because it is toasted oak and not charred oak. Are you noticing anything right off the top that like stands out as being a little different from other whiskeys you've had? Root beer. A, a herbaceousness? Yeah, root beer is good. I also get like a plumminess, like a, a dark purple fruit. Like uh, some, it's, it's like a really rich fruit. And I usually attribute those kind of esters. Like we attribute... Uh, we call fruit flavors esters, and often that comes from the fermentation. Mm -hmm. So how long is the fermentation on this whiskey? Four to five days. Okay, so pretty long and, fermentation. And um, probably unique to us is we don't use a distilling yeast. We use, um, over the years, Anchor Brewing has had a lager yeast mainly used for Anchor Steam and an ale yeast that's used for everything else. Now they've done beers, specialty beers where they've brought in, you know, like an English pale ale yeast for it or something like that. But that house, um, anchor house ale yeast is what we've always used for the whiskey. Typically, um, rye whiskeys use unmalted rye. So yeah, they use malted barley, you know, 10%, you know, whatever for conversion for the enzymes. But this when we started and we were playing around with stuff, um, and I don't know if it's because we were brewers, but we kind of fell in love with the flavor of the malted rye and and really liked it. And so, so, so different from it. it's like, yeah. yeah. 
So when you malt rye, so you're, you're sprouting the rye essentially, and, and most of the time you're not using malted rye, so you don't get that, you get a nuttier character from or a spicier character, whereas this is gonna be a little bit sweeter. It opens up the, the sugars of that dormant seed of the rye, rye grass. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know, we thought you'd get like a, you know, a little bit of a rounder character from the rye, but it still, you know, retains a lot of that that spiciness. That's one thing that we, we liked about it, just kind of initially that we thought, by the rye, we loved it. It was just like all kinds of flavors and, and you know, there's a lot going on with rye. So it's, you know, I always thought if someone said, oh, what I like in whiskey is something, you know, real mellow and smooth and easy drinking, eh, maybe you won't want rye. You know, rye's got a lot a lot of flavor going on. Yeah, so. it's, it's very rich in flavor. Yeah. So tap some over your tongue, guys. How's that experience changed? You smelled it and you had some first impressions, but now let's go deep. Tap it over your tongue, and what happens next? How's that experience change? Mm. Pa-pow. It's like if someone took a little, uh, little melon scoop and just put some activated charcoal on it or something. Oh, nice. I'm kind of getting that melon, charcoal, flavor on it. Ginger snaps. Ginger snaps, it's beautiful. It's really fruity, it's nice. Mm-hmm. And I'm getting like, there's there's a distinct wood taste though on the finish. I, I like, and it's not that charred oak, it's, it's just straight oak. I just get yeah. this nice, it's just straight oak on the end, you know? It's it's really nice, it's, it's very dry. Yeah, um, it, it's drying uh, uh, at the finish, you know. So right. what's the proof on this? Um, this is 102.4. Uh, 102.4, great way. So you guys are probably already feeling better about life, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> it's that easy. Just got to start off with the 100 proof stuff. Oh, hell yeah, it's every closer time. to Friday already. <laughs> so it's, it's not every day that we get to have a master distiller in the house, and it's kind of a big deal. So your day-to-day -day, your day-to-day -day work, how often are you actually doing barrel samples as a master distiller? Like, how much whiskey do you taste every day? I don't taste every day. No? No. Do you no. smell every day? You know, kind of a formal tasting, um, and, and kind of, you know, over the years we've kind of tried to develop you know, more controlled setting. Um, and we, we recognize that, you know, day to day, everyone changes, you know, you feel different. There's some days yeah. that, you know, I've tasted something, oh God, that's horrible. And then the next day I'll <laughs> love it, you know. It's, and and so we, we try to do a more controlled thing. So a couple times a week and, you know, we try to to set a time. We've really found over the years that, that you can pick up a lot more um, like, mid late morning you know we usually try to taste 10 10 30. okay before you've eaten lunch and yeah really yeah deep no it's a, you know times that we we've done it in the afternoon that that i don't know sometimes it just it just seems like a jumble that you can't really pick out things you feel like just you know having an uneducated taster sometimes mm -hmm. with mm -hmm. that the other thing that we used to do that fritz insisted that that we do he'd always say um, when we when we were trying stuff, say take you know like fifty milliliters home, sit in your easy chair if it's in the winter in front of the fireplace, and he said drink it there. We're standing in a lab, yeah. drinking. You know he right. said go drink it like you would yeah. you know at home, which is I think a good point. That, That's a you know, great point for that, sure. That you can be um, you know almost too clinical about it sometimes. That you should you know also you know you try to do that because you're looking for. Um, 
you know, a lot of times you're looking for, for mistakes that you might have made and that sometimes you should, you should look at what's right about it instead of trying to pick out what's wrong. Focus with on the it. positive, baby. And Come I didn't on. make that up. I, I got that from the beer writer, um, Michael Jackson. <laughs> he was um, brilliant. I, I, I judged for a number of years at the Great American Beer Festival in my brewing career, and I was judging once with him, and there was a brewmaster from Anheuser-Busch and a brewmaster from Miller. They were both trashing this beer, and he stopped me and said, the problem with you is all you care about is what's wrong with the beer. How about what's right with this beer? And I thought, yeah, that's a good point. You know, that's that, right. that you that's should right. take it easy and enjoy it, you know? Yeah, well, that's a good, let's toast to that. Let's look for the positive things in life, right? Here's, Michael cheers, Jackson. Guys. Here's to Michael Jackson. Yeah, cheers. So, Bruce, when you guys go to bottle the 18th century style, what's about the batch size that you're bottling every day? How many barrels go into a bottling batch? Well, we're kind of, not very many, usually like 12. Wow. And that's kind of dictated by um, equipment that we have. Um, so how big is your still? Well, we have one wash still and two spirit stills. Our one wash still um, is fairly new. It's 1,500 liters. Um, we have a, a 700 liter spirit still and a 250 liter spirit still. Wow, those are small stills. Yes. Really small stills. So you guys were very much ahead of the curve in terms of the um, the craft distilling boom that's currently happening in America. You guys were on board like 20 years ago. Yeah, it was 25 years ago that we started distilling. We released our first whiskey in January of 96. And I think when we, um, when we released the first Old Petrero, it was the only fully pot distilled whiskey in the United States. Wow. That's amazing. So most of the American whiskey that we experience is, involves a column still, which is a continuously running still. And then they use a pot still to kind of add flavor to their column still distillate. But you guys aren't, at that time, you weren't using a column still at all. It was we all still are. Still. Not, no column still. No column stills. It's all, modeling. it's all double distilled in copper pot stills. That is awesome. So... Yeah, yeah, cheers to that. <laughs> we got Maurice Chevalier in the house tonight. He's, he gets very excited at times. We're going to have Maurice. If you guys have never, if you haven't been in the whiskey side for a long time, Maurice will be back before the end of the year. He always likes to do the last whiskey society of the year, and he brings in some incredibly special marks. So I'm just teasing you now. I'm just causing jealousy and rage. Now back to Bruce. <laughs> <laughs> yes, back to Bruce. So, Bruce. Which one's this? That was the second one. Yeah, what is what is the second one? And this is now we're getting into the this is the straight rye. So how is this different from the 18th century style? Well, th this again is 100% malted rye, but this is um, aged um, four and a half to five years in a, a new charred oak barrel. So this it meets the the uh, U.S. definition of straight, straight rye, rye whiskey. Excellent. So 51% rye, but what's the actual mash bill? It's 100% malted rye. How is that possible? How can you make a whiskey out of 100% malted rye? Uh, you know, you, you, you know that's the, the thing. 100% malted rye, it, it's got a lot of ability to convert. Okay. So conversion is no problem. Okay. Um, you know, we're, we're like bourbon, we're, we're fermenting a full mash. So we're not trying to lauder, you, you know. I I don't think on any kind of scale you could run off 
the liquid from a, a rye mash. It's just too kind of viscous, too and gluey. Sticky. Yeah. yeah. But um, so it's it's a you know 100 rye mash, um, and so it's very similar to the to the the first the 18th century whiskey. The difference is it's it's charred barrels, and these barrels are um, toasted first and then charred. Wow! And so again, drawing those sugars toward the yeah toward the flame, and then really going for the char, but also yeah. opening up that wood that allows deeper penetration yeah. for your whiskey and, and also and also a deeper penetration. Of of the the you know the the, the toasting yeah oh, okay so that the 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 layer that's either toasted or charred on top of it is further into the stave ah. than if you just charred it and had a, a char layer. So if you look at a, a side cut of a barrel stave underneath the layer of charcoal, there's a little tiny red line, and they call it the red line. But that is the caramelized sugar of of the white oak tree. So by Toasting at first, you're setting that red line deeper into the heart yeah. of the wood. Well, and and even that that the the toast level extends beyond where the char eventually reaches. So there's almost this additional um, layer below the char. That's, that's toasted, super interesting to me. Rather than being, being a tree nerd, I'm yeah. a big tree hugger. The thing that's really interesting here, you've got. This malted rye in this special barrel. Are you using a different size barrel? Is it all 53-gallon barrels? All 53-gallon. At one point, we experimented with 100-liter um, barrels. So it's half half size, 26 and a, roughly 26 and a half gallons. And we did some in that. And, and we didn't like it. Whoever came up with 53 gallons, um, it's a good size. It's like the oak extraction and the maturation happen kind of equally instead of, you know, you, you can, you, there's tons of ways to get oak into, into the liquid. Yeah. But you could just you'll have infuse an, it if you wanted yeah, to. Yeah. You'll have an immature spirit that's very oaky. Right. So, you know, the, the surface area of a 53 gallon barrel seems to kind of keep pace with, with, um, you know, the maturation and the oak extract. And again, that was no one's plan. Uh, the 53-gallon barrel was the shipping container of the old world. No one was like, we should use a small barrel. No, because the 53-gallon barrel was just something that was easily manageable by one person to move. You can roll it up a gangplank and put it on a boat with just one person. It didn't require, it wasn't so big that it was too big for one person to manage. It was basically designed for one human to be able to move. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it was just... Circum, uh, you know, it was just luck, just luck. Yeah. yeah. Or it could be also that we're just used to that. And that's what in our brain, that is the definition of whiskey is like, it tastes like whiskey. It comes out of 53 gallon barrel. And we underestimate how sensitive our palates are to texture. So you can take that same age spirit, put it in a half size barrel or a quarter size barrel, and you're going to be able to tell because you are acutely sensitive to texture. You know, when you ask someone like, how's that whiskey? The average person says smooth. This is the first word yeah. out of their mouth, which is not a food word. That is a texture. And so just to understand that about your own palate is that you are very sensitive to the way things feel in your mouth, not just the flavor profile itself. And that has everything to do with surface area of oak to whiskey. The, that ratio is what we define good whiskey as in that 53-gallon barrel. Just time and time again. I agree. So here we go. You guys, <laughs> stick your nose in that glass. Tell me what you're experiencing as you smell this straight rye from Old Petrero. Dry sherry. 
dry sherry. Wow. But there's no sherry. You guys aren't using, this is just a, a toasted and charred barrel. Not yet. So We're, we're getting to that. Chocolate-covered macadamia is beautiful. Welcome to Hawaii. Ooh, it is chocolatey. I love that. That, that I always get those chocolate notes, and it, it's that long fermentation to me. I, I get that a lot. It's like the, those dark fruit and chocolate. Those, those esters, I think, come from that longer fermentation. So you guys aren't rushing the process. It's very possible in this day and age to throw like amylase or, or a yeast accelerant in there and, and get that yeast to hurry up. You could get this brewer's beer to get up to 8 or 9% in one shift. You could do it in one day if you wanted, but you guys yeah. aren't doing that. No, I, I mean, you know, the yeast were, were used, first of all, like to go back to enzymes, I don't know. Yeah, come on. I we want to nerd I should, out. I shouldn't even say this. We love like if people are clapping over. That's how <laughs> the whiskey said we're such nerds. We're like <laughs> clapping for enzymes. <laughs> yeah, enzymes. <laughs> Let's do it, enzymes. I, I, I just kind of have a, a philosophical thing about adding package enzymes to your mash. I think I don't know. People do I mean, it all the time. I know it's fine if people want to do it, and you know, God bless them. But um, I think if you're making, you know, like craft whiskey, that you know. Uh, I think, you know, God made malt to, to be the enzymes. That's so, right. You know, that's right. All right. All right. So tap this over your tongue, guys. What do you think of this stray rye? Tell me about your food words here. Come on now. It's like peanut brittle. Peanut brittle? Yeah. And marshmallow. And marshmallow. Nice. Candy. Ooh, graham cracker, too. I'm getting like graham cracker and chocolate. It's almost like texture. s'mores. The way the texture disperses on your tongue, it's so odd. It's like, it's almost like, it's not completely what you know. It's like hitting my palate in different regions every single time. Oh, yeah, it's very complex. And I, I attribute that to that long fermentation and that double toasted, toasted and charred barrel. It's something that's, you're adding a lot of complexity in yeah. there. And I, th I think, you know, the, the, the thing about... Um, um, malted malted rye too. I think I think a lot of that that richness um, comes from that, and and just you know kind of a kind of bursting with different flavors. I think I think a lot of it is malted rye. Ah, I love it, man. I love it. It's beautiful. So um, now, were you the master distiller when when did you become master distiller? And like because. We've established the fact that you guys were kind of like way out in front of the curve in terms of that craft distilling movement. But how long have you actually been doing it? And, and was it kind of accidental moving from the brewing side of things into the distillation? No, no. Fritz asked me if, if I would be interested. And he didn't want to go out and um, Fritz, you know, he had this, this attitude that I saw right away when I started working there that kind of drew me to want to, want to work there that there was this feeling that they could, you know, we can do whatever we want. We can, if we want to do something, we can figure out how to do it. And, um, you know, when he started, you know, the distillery, um, he didn't want to go out and hire, you know, like a master distiller. He wanted, you know, that we would do it our, ourselves. That's cool. And, you know, as brewers, you know, the mashing and the fermentation you know that that part. You know we know what we're doing with that, but the 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 distilling was new to us, and there wasn't that information out there in the early '90s that's out there now to you know kind of resources for small distillers, and um, we just you know I, don't, I might have already said it, but 
we had a huge advantage in that we didn't we weren't going to go under if we didn't have a product out by a certain time that the the brewery was supporting what we were doing and so we um we made a lot of stuff and threw it away and we didn't want to start putting stuff into barrels until we thought the new spirit was you know good enough you know barrels are expensive and and um and so we took our time and and one thing that we did is, you know, you know, trying to develop cut points is we got our distributor sent us a, a pallet of empty bud quart bottles with screw caps. And we would do distillations and every quart that came off the still heads and everything, we would collect it and label it and then set it aside. And then we would go back and taste every quart throughout the distillation to see what was happening. So a lot of drinking, drinking heads. Yeah, huh? like, yeah. Some yeah. of it wasn't very good, right? You know? Like you were well, hungover. Some, some of it, you could just smell it and, and, and like think, not. Nah, we don't that. need to put That's that poison. in your mouth. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but but stuff like that for people that didn't know what they were doing, it it, it was really a valuable thing to to be able to do that. And so that's um, really cool, man. Yeah, yeah. It, it was a, uh, you know, I I don't know. How how you would go about it, but that's the way we went about it. So someday when you retire, you're just going to go out and give consultations to all these like craft distillers that are coming up. Is that I think they're doing fine. <laughs> so let's come around with this uh, next mark his step. So this is the hobbling whiskey here. So can you tell us about the name hobblings? What does that mean? Well, when we started out, um, you know, the initial whiskey we bottled was in toasted barrels, but we as we started making whiskey, we put whiskey in new um, toasted oak, new charred oak for the straight rye whiskey. And then um, we bought um, used bourbon barrels and we put whiskey into that. And kind of being inexperienced with whiskey, um, you know, we would taste everything, you know, periodically. And um, we loved the, the new toasted oak, the new charred oak, but we thought the stuff in the in the used bourbon barrels, it was pleasant, but it was kind of unremarkable uh, until we tasted it when it was about seven years old. I remember one time we hadn't tasted it in probably four or five months, and we got some samples and we tasted it. And I think we all took a sip and we looked at each other and we thought, well, first we thought we really blew it because since we didn't think it was remarkable, we hadn't put any more into used bourbon barrels. And, you know, there's our, our inexperience showing. But it, it really, it, it, it didn't start to get really interesting. And, it, you know, right away it kind of, you know, showed us the difference between a used barrel and a new barrel and, and the amount of time, you know, it takes to, to develop in that barrel. And so... We had this whiskey, and um, Fritz wanted to do something for um, the 100th anniversary of the 1906 um, San Francisco earthquake. And um, um, Hodlings, or as the family pronounced it, Hotalings. Hotalings? I'm yeah. even way off. It didn't even correct me. I was saying Hodlings. I'm like not even in the same ballpark here. It, it, just as long as you have it, you know. <laughs> um, was a, a whiskey warehouse in the 1800s in San Francisco. And it's, uh, for those of you familiar with San Francisco, it was on Hodling Place, which was just north of um, the Transamerica building. So it was the Barbary Coast. And they weren't distillers, but they were, you know, the biggest kind of, um, they, they had barrels there. They warehoused, they, they sourced whiskey and filled barrels and did bottlings. 
And they were, they were one of the bigger ones, you know, on the whole West Coast. And in the 1906 earthquake, a lot of the damage was done by the, the quake itself, but the fire was what really destroyed a lot of San Francisco. And um, in the middle of all this fire, somehow the warehouse with all the whiskey in it survived. And they said it was a pretty, you know, pretty valiant effort by, by quite a bit of, you know, I think the Navy and some other people to run a hose from the bay to save the whiskey warehouse. <laughs> um, so, it was a minute after my own heart there. And the, bo the bottle's over here. So after, after the fire and the earthquake, um, a lot of the newspapers in the United States said that um, the earthquake, you know, San Francisco at the time with the Barbary Coast and everything is a pretty wild town and you know, a lot of vice. And um, a lot of the, the newspapers around the country were suggesting that it was God's retribution um, for San Francisco's wild ways. They have no idea what they're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> so this, um, this guy who's a, a, a journalist, a Stanford grad, Charles K. Field, he wrote at the time, if, as they say, God spanked the town for being over frisky, why did he burn the churches down and save Hodling's whiskey? So, <laughs> so True poetry. Fr Fritz, this is kind of typical of something Fritz would find to, to you know, and so we released it on, on the 100th anniversary of the, um, of the earthquake. Wow. Well, and just, now uh, when we do it, um, we... We released it every year from an 11-year-old from that original batch of whiskey. Um, once a year on the anniversary of the earthquake, we would release a small bottling. Um, and we ran out after 18 years. It was 18 years old. Um, after that original batch, we've now bottled it just once more since then because, you know, as I said, we screwed up and didn't put more in barrels. But now it's in our used charred barrels. So it's in... Um, Old Petrero straight rye whiskey used barrels. Oh, cool. Yeah. So stick your nose in this glass. And is there, what's the difference in the mash bill here? 100% malted rye. <laughs> <laughs> I told you we liked it. We yeah, liked right. it. It is, but it's just this really lovely blend. Just... Yeah. That's what we thought. You know, we thought too. And it, it's like, you know, we wonder, you know, it is all malt, but it's rye. It's not barley. But that we thought with this that it, it has like there's something little tiny something in it that can remind you of scotch. Yeah, yeah and it's yeah. not we're not really on the whole very scotch like. There's a little component the somewhere in there. Is, yeah, absolutely. You know? I was getting bubblegum bubble and mint. Yeah, that's good. I was getting a little of the mint. I was getting like that dark chocolate, those dark fruits again, like. Um, Purple fruit, like plum, uh, honeysuckle. Uh, we had a question. Is this the straight rye that's finished in, in the port barrel? It's, it's technically, yes, but not really um, what, what we bottle as straight rye. Mm. What do you mean, man? <laughs> yeah, no, I'm curious, too, because I've been selling it as that. Yeah. <laughs> well, we, it's, it's a, a little lighter on the char, a little, you know, it, it just a little different. Just some experiment, you know, that, that, we, that we decided to do this with. So what's the, the number of char in general you're using on your barrels? Three well, char? We, over the years, we've tried, we've gone anywhere from what, they needed to call light char because it was below their number one. Wow. Up to number four. And what we um, 
mainly used Thanks, for Steve. quite a few years was number three. And with, uh, straight rye that we're bottling now, just starting to get into it, is um, more of a combination to, of um, three and four. Okay. So, um, you know, I don't know, you know, and we've done the same thing with toasted barrels, you know, just different levels of toast. Um, I, I don't know if that, it keeps it interesting for us, you know, I yeah. guess that, that we, you know, and maybe our tastes change and change back again. How many folks are on your tasting panel? Like <laughs> when you go to work, how many folks are in the room like actually doing all the barrel samples? I got them lining day? up outside. They yeah. all <laughs> People are willing to work for free, huh? There's, there's um, work for taste. Ge generally three of us. And uh, all, mostly, I, it's my understanding that most professional tasters are women. So do you, do you have any women on your, uh, is, it, is it your, your yeah. core group? Yeah, one woman. Okay. What a great job. She's, she's not a taster, though. She's the, the lead distiller. Oh, wow. Yeah. So well, she's probably distilled. She was one of the you know, first women. She's been distilling for um, 13 years. Wow. Well, we got to get her down here, too, then. Yeah. got to have her into the Whiskey Society. What was your question, my friend? Uh, do you guys use which fermentation tanks or steel? St stainless steel. Stainless steel. You know... Um, Again, this is you know I realize that a lot of a, a lot of uh, stuff kind of influences me because of my background as a, a brewer, but jeez, you know it's like stainless steel you can clean it and stuff and you can kind of control you know I mean you know I know wood wood is very traditional and stuff but. Um, no, I don't know. We use stainless steel. <laughs> I mean, yeah, in the old world, they didn't have stainless steel. Yeah. They probably would have used it. But the, 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 the other thing is, is that by using wood, wood is a, is, it's very porous. And it, it allows like a hiding spot for all those microbes and bacterium and other things that might want to compete with the yeast. That being said, sometimes the confluence of those different bacterium working in adverse, you know, against the yeast... Uh, will create different flavors too. And like, there's tons of old scotches that they use old wood uh, fermentation vats. And you can bet that a lot of the funkiness is coming from those those wood yeah. Yeah, vats. It's, yeah, and the other th thing though is um, we don't use like unitanks. We use um, round open fermenters. So they're fairly shallow. So if you've been to, you know, some bourbon distillers, they have pretty, you know, big open, um, stainless. And so it, it, it's similar in shape um, to that. So this is it. Here's the straight rye with some barrel experimentation, but finished in a port barrel. What are you guys getting as you smell this whiskey? Uh, black currant liqueur would be a um, Chambord. Chambord. Figs? Yeah. I get that. That's good. I get honey too. It's really, really sweet yeah. on the nose. You know, we had, what was that? Cherry? Yes. Cherry. Cherry. Cherry, cherry. Nice, nice. The initial aging was um, a little over three years. The, in the, the port barrel, um, this particular one was, I, th I think, about 10 months or so. Um, we're still. Um, you know, we're new to finishing in, in other barrels. And one thing that, that we found 
difficult so far as a small distillery is um, the, to get kind of a consistent um, supply of port barrels. We we've had some now. Now Fritz Maytag has owned a vineyard um, boy since the '60s in Napa, um, and he had a a winery across the street from Anchor um, from 2000 to, to 2010, and he grows all the port varieties and he makes port. But when he sold Anchor in 2010, um, he he kind of got out of the winemaking thing. He, wa he wanted to retire. I think his wife wanted him to retire, too. Um, and when we've managed to get some of his port barrels, they, they were really good. And, of course, we were getting them. You know, they were freshly dumped. Um, uh, you know, he called me and said that they were going to bottle it. And so I was there and, and took the barrels right then. It's a huge difference between barrels that are, you know, like steam cleaned and go to a broker and sit around for a long time. So, um, you know, the, you know, the jury's kind of out on, on how long we would finish it in a barrel. But, um, we did this for the first time last year. Um, we did port barrels. Um, we did, um, French oak Cabernet, um, American oak Cabernet, um, American oak Chardonnay, and then we did one that, um, now it was a, a beer barrel. It was a stout barrel, but before that, it was one of our straight rye whiskey barrels, and then we aged apple brandy in it, and then we gave it Tanker Brewing, and they aged a, a pretty high-gravity stout in it for a year. It's <laughs> awesome. And then, and then we took it back. So the barrels were about, you know, about 14, 15 years old, and we took it back, and we finished... Um, finished old Petro in, in that stout barrel. So that's that's a one-time thing. We're never going to duplicate those barrels, I don't think. Wow. Well, I'm not. I'm going to be around for it. But <laughs> Maybe I will be. Yeah, I don't know. You're doing fine, Bruce. You're doing fine. You look great. Yeah. <laughs> Keep hitting that gym. All right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is, um, I'm getting a lot of, like, that cherry and honey, definitely, like yeah. cherry and honey around the nose. Uh Tap it over your tongue. How's that experience finish? What 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 else? What else? Like grappa, mm -hmm. grapes, absolutely. Maraschino. Okay, yeah, yeah. Have you ever had the candy where it's like uh, it's like a cherry and then it has like a weird like syrupy liqueur and it's covered in chocolate? They're like little like little chocolate cordials. Yeah, but yeah. they're like, there's like a cherry in the middle. Yeah, so like yeah. Maraschino cherry with like syrup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, chocolate yeah. covered cherries. Yeah. Yeah, but it's got like a liqueur in it too. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Wow. That is brilliant. That is amazing. Yeah, and one, one thing that we thought with. Um, with our, one one thing that we liked is is you know I thought like some whiskeys that tend to be sweet to me like finished in port it's kind of for me for my personal taste it's like a little too much sweetness I, I think this is some a thing where rye itself and it and its spiciness and kind of bigger flavor um, works well with with a port barrel instead of um, you know just being kind of almost bordering on um, like cloyingly sweet or something. Wow. Yeah. 
amazing stuff. Very drying on the palate. It's really, you, you do get that grapeiness, but it's very, very dry. It's astringent. It like cleans your palate. It's so amazing. Straight biscuits, so many different types of dried fruit and charcuterie. Yeah. Yeah, this is gorgeous. Mm. Beautiful. The question was, where are you getting the rye from? We get the malted rye from a, a malt company that we, you know, have, have used, Anchor Brewing has used forever. And so, um, and they were one of the early ones um, that did malted rye. You know, they're, in the United States, there wasn't a lot of um, rye being malted when we started distilling. Um, so so we've, we've gotten it from them and we've tried other sources, but we've, we've always gone back to, to that. Well, you know, it used to be grown, a lot of rye was in the northern plain states, like in the Dakotas, but the the acreage has been lost to um, a lot of corn subsidies, and, you know, malted barley has the same problem, so a lot of the rye now comes from um, Canada, you know, over the border. So. That's what I thought. Yeah. She's from Canada, so she has a best. <laughs> <laughs> well, cool. Step. We're gonna we're gonna come around now with the um, which is J H Cutter. So this is kind of the launch for the J H Cutter. I, I've never had this one before. It was in the punch earlier. So this is a bourbon. Well, it's it's actually. Um, a blend of bourbon and rye whiskey. Ah. And you know, there, there's one other thing I should say is, is you know, I kind of I kind of left out of the history of, of our distillery. Um, we were Anchor Distilling. Um, in 2010, Fritz Maytag sold Anchor Brewing and Distilling to, um, to, to two main individuals. They had other people involved. And, um, Last August, they sold the brewery, Anchor Brewing, to Sapporo. So Sapporo owns Anchor Brewing, but they retained um, the distillery. Part of the Japanese beer? Yes. Part of the terms of the sale um, were that the brewery kept the Anchor name, and we had to change our name. And that's where Hodling and Company um, came from. And it was the name of our whiskey, and it was the you know, the old San Francisco whiskey warehouse. So um, the distillery became a, a, a separate company from the brewery. We're still in the same building as of the sale um, was final last August 31st. We have until August 31st of 2020 to move to a different location. And so that's, that's so now we're, we're uh, just an independent company, just a distillery, and, and um, hopefully getting close on finding another location in San Francisco. We want to stay in the city. Yeah, Hunter's Point, come on. Yeah. This, this whiskey was, uh, is, is really a big departure for us because, um, you know, because we've always had, you know, really limited production and not a very big supply of whiskey, um, we decided to try to do something different from, for, for us. This is part sourced whiskey and part our whiskey. Um, we had, a, had a, an arrangement with um, Kentucky Bourbon Distillers, with Willett, um, of, of their distillate once they started distilling again. Which is only recently. Yeah, yeah it's been um, um, five and a half years or so. 
And so, and, and this was our first bottling of this, this um, about five months ago. Um, this is 73% um, um, Kentucky bourbon distillers bourbon, 17% Old Potrero, and 10% Old Potrero finished in port barrels. Oh, so wow. it's, it's 27%. And what we were trying to do is something that was, you know, maybe a little more accessible than some of the other Old Potreros. Yeah. But yet, I wanted it to still have the character of Old Potrero. And I kind of liked um, that, you know, kind of that small port finished uh, component in it. Um, Seemed to add something to it to me. And is this kind of a little bit lower bottle price as well? Is that yeah. the idea? Yeah, it's it's uh, what forty nine ninety five, huh? Forty nine ninety nine on the shelf. Yeah. All right. All right. Yes. So a little more accessible and and not so historical, perhaps not as yeah. going as deep into that like old world style. Yeah. A little more contemporary style, but yeah. still like you could say that you know the high rye content still is old. Yeah. Yeah. Old style. Yeah, it, it's it, it definitely. Um, I'll I'll ask Jonathan in a minute to give us the prices on the full uh, line. But stick your nose in the glass, guys. Tell me about this J.H. Cutter. You probably never had it before. I've never had this one before. This is basically our little L.A. launch here. So you're some of the first folks in L.A. to be able to, to taste this. So what is your experience? Come on. You know, like, after it rains and, like, the soil smells kind of sweet? Yeah, petrichor. Yeah. Tastes meadowy, right? Nice. Yeah, so clover. All right, all right, beautiful. Petrichor. Uh, it's it's wet earth. The smell of wet earth. The earth opens when it rains. You know, the earth wants to receive moisture, so a lot of minerality comes into the air. You know, is is. So, Jonathan, the question was, if if of of the line, what's the price for the for the old Petrero stuff from the 18th century to the straight rye? To the hotelings. So, uh, so on, on the shelf, list price should be for the 18th century uh, and, the, and the straight ride. They're usually maybe five dollars apart, um, but you're looking at like 59.99 to 69.99 more or less. Uh, and then uh, totally, you can find it. Yeah, like 110, 120. Port finish uh, should be around 100 bucks. We did, we don't really have it out too much yet because it literally just landed. And, um, and this is small distillery. Still, you guys work with such small stills. So the, yeah. the actual the releases themselves are very small. That being said, again, you can always hit up your mom pop liquor store and ask them to order it. Most of the time they will. If they don't have it, they're usually more than willing to, to get it. So always ask. If you don't have it, ask for it and they'll get it. But what are you guys getting on this JH cutter? <laughs> Dried peach. I'm getting cinnamon. I smell yeah. cinnamon. Nutmeg. Nutmeg. Brilliant peanut butter. Nutmeg. Cherry. Cherry. Yeah. 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 Sandalwood. What else? Sandalwood. Beautiful. Beautiful. Step. What are you getting on this one? It almost. It is like it's a little sawdusty, but it's still sweet. On the palate. Mm -hmm, when mm -hmm. I was, the nose for sure, it's just like wetter, mm. but it's just like still so sweet. Yeah. Smell that smell so how young is the whiskey that you're getting from Willet for this? <laughs> it's, um, it's about four and a half years old. Okay, beautiful. Wow, I like this one a lot. 
You guys are doing all right. <laughs> well, thank you. Was this your kind of brainchild to like create this blend? Yeah, and you know my my fellow distillers. All right, all right. So you have a question over there? Yeah, yeah. It's it's column stilled and then pot stilled. Yeah, they have two two stills at Willet. Yeah, it's a, if you're ever in Bardstown, it's a, a beautiful distillery. Yeah, it's yeah. Really nice. small, small, and yeah, they were small. out of production for years and years. So a lot of the Willet that you may be familiar with was actually sourced. They only recently, in the last six years, started distilling again. They, I think, they closed down in 1984, so they were dormant for a long time. But the Willet family was very well known in in Kentucky and still had a lot of old contracts, like old source contracts with a lot of the stills. So they were still able to keep the Willet line going, even though they weren't making themselves. And I think they operated as a bottler during yeah. that time. Oh, yeah, too. that's what they I'm had, saying. They were, they, yeah. were, they were private labeling that whole time. So a lot of what Willet has been famous for was sourced whiskey, but now they're back in the game. So look for some very exciting whiskeys come from Willet yeah. in, the, in the coming years, for sure. And it's, you know, if, if you're in Bardstown, I, I thought it's a, it's it's nice because it's on a, it is on a little smaller scale than some of them, you know, so. Yeah. And it's it's probably not you know as slick of an experience as some others, but it's it's a, a nice place. Yeah, right on, right on. Well, thank you so much, Bruce, for coming out tonight, guys. Give it up for Mr. Bruce Joseph. Thank you. Thank you. It's, it's easy with you, you know. You, 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 you make it, you know. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, it's a really great experience. Anytime we can have a master distiller in the house, it's a big deal. And we, we really appreciate your knowledge. Thanks for taking the time out. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you like what you heard, please head over to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating and review. The Spirit Guide Society is a Spirit Adventures production in association with Bitten from the Apple Productions. Special thanks to Tone Mesa for their post-production and audio services. The show was produced by Andrew Apple and me, Pedro Shanahan. Executive producer, Andrew Abrahamson. Be sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Spirit Guide SOC. We'll be there to answer any questions you have, share what we're drinking, and more. And if you're still thirsty, you can always find more episodes of the show wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to always drink responsibly. That means don't drink to forget. Drink to remember. Remember.